Uh, You guys can open your Bibles to Genesis 3, and uh, please begin with me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning, for a new morning with new morning mercies, and we thank you that this particular morning, this Lord's Day morning, we have the joy of being together and sitting under your word. Father, we rejoice in your promises that you are near to the weak and that you help the weak. And Father, we confess that we are the weak, Lord, that we need your help as we come to your word, especially to a text like this. And Father, we need your help to see the glory and the hope that there is here. So would you open our eyes to see it? Would you give clarity to my words and to uh, those who hear? And Father, may you be glorified in it all. And Lord, may we rejoice. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some 50 years ago, a young Jewish rabbi visited a woman who had just lost her young husband. When the rabbi arrived at her home, the first thing the woman said to him was, why would God let this happen to such a good person? In his effort to comfort her, the rabbi offered a complicated theological answer, mostly having to do with the mystery of God's sovereignty. Almost as soon as he began to speak, however, the rabbi knew his words were doing nothing to comfort the woman. In his later telling, this rabbi said that he believes, and I would probably agree with him on this, that what this woman really needed was a hug rather than his complicated theological answer. That young rabbi's name was Harold Kushner. Within a few years, the experience just described would help lead Kushner to publish his best-known work, a book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Through this work, Rabbi Kushner has led millions of readers and doubtless many more through their influence to the belief that the answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is that God is not ultimately in control. That God would like to do something about these bad things, but he just isn't able to. Now I know that a lot of you, hopefully all of you, recoil at that thought, and rightly so. There are few more precious doctrines to us, especially when we suffer, than the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. But I want to challenge you to think this morning about the inadequacy of answering the question of suffering by merely emphasizing God's justified and inscrutable sovereignty. First, to establish our context, recall that last week we learned from verses 1 to 8 of Genesis 3 that sin and death are in the world because of man's rebellious failure to subdue the creation. We saw how sin approached God's perfect, beautiful, and good creation by means of the serpent, Satan, who had already become enraptured with his own wisdom and had sinned in his pride. The serpent went about his work of corrupting the creation with a subtle and crafty kind of anti-God knowledge according to which he addressed Eve rather than Adam, plying her with half-truths and suggestions rather than outright lies or demands. And we watched as we saw our own hearts reflected in how Eve and Adam with her as he remained silent, as Eve willingly made her heart an entryway for sin, doubting the word of God, the one who was their life and who had given them all good things. Adam and Eve's willful turn away from God, away from life, explains the presence of sin, suffering, and death in the world. Now with this knowledge, a believer who holds rightly to the sovereignty of God might dismiss Kushner's crisis question with a response like this, bad things happen to good people? Impossible. 
The Bible teaches there's no such thing as a good person. Now, as I mentioned, our text from last week offered only a partial answer to the question at hand, a question I noted is asked much earlier in the book of Job. The question Job poses, and which Moses is answering in Genesis 3, is not just about why suffering and death are realities generally, but more specifically, is it possible, or is it right, that the innocent should suffer? Or, to use Rabbi Kushner's words, do bad things actually happen to good people? And in case what I'm getting at isn't already clear, let me say it this way. The first eight verses of Genesis 3 show, beyond a shadow of a doubt, how guilty and how dark the heart of man is. They demonstrate that human rebellion is the source of the utterly deserved presence of sin, death, and suffering in the world. What they do not tell us is how it is possible that any person whose heart resembles Adam and Eve's, which is all of us, could rightly be called innocent or good. And so we move on to our text for today in order to find the next piece of the answer. Whereas the first eight verses demonstrate the guilt and darkness of our hearts, these next verses find man's heart brought out of the shadows and demonstrate for us how God is justly able to declare a sinful person innocent. We will also see how innocent suffering is a key component of the way God has ordained to work all of this out. So without further ado, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to start in verse 9. Then Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you to not eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. As we work through these eight verses, what we're going to learn is God's solution for sin. Namely, that God deals with sin by eliciting the sinner's confession and by promising the enemy's defeat. And as that statement implies, God's solution for sin takes two aspects in this text, one directed towards the sinner and the other directed towards a more ultimate end. And so let's look now at the first aspect of God's solution to sin. Number one, God elicits the sinner's confession. Read with me from verse 9. Then Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The first thing you need to see here, as noted in your outline, is the mercy of what is happening. As we saw last week, immediately following the description of the fall, the very next verses describe the sound of the very next verse describes the sound of God walking in the garden. Here in verse nine, as God opens his mouth to give them his word, we see even more clearly that his mission is one of mercy. 
The word God speaks here is not a word of judgment like the one we'll find later towards the serpent. Here, rather, is a word of hope, a word demonstrating God's intention to seek them so that he might rescue them. The first detail in the text that indicates God's rescuing intent is something that actually started back in verse 8. I didn't mention this last week, but one of the indicators of Eve's progression towards welcoming sin, in addition to the other details I did mention, is found in verse 3, where Eve follows the snake in leaving out Yahweh from God's name. Whereas the text had consistently called him Yahweh God since the beginning of chapter 2, Eve, in verse 3, simply calls him God, as the serpent had done in verse 1. Starting with verse 8, however, and continuing here in verse 9, the narration returns to using God's covenant name. The use of God's covenant name in this way reflects his faithfulness, his love, and his covenant loyalty as he shows up in pursuit of Adam and Eve. The next indicator that God's approach here is one of mercy rather than condemnation is that his words take the form of a question. Where are you? Now, as we know from the testimony of the whole Bible, and as we can see even from the details of this text, God does not ask questions because he is ignorant. And so we must ask, why does God ask this question? And why does he ask all the questions that follow? Well, for one thing, consider the difference between the effect of a question and the effect of an assertion or an accusation. And how many times have we all heard this from Pastor Dan? That accusations harden the heart, but questions convict the conscience. As an aside, I have to admit that after a few years of being here at Calvary, I remember looking that up in Proverbs, trying to find it. <laughs> it's not there. <laughs> Although it is an outworking of such verses as Proverbs 15.1, that a gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. And as we'll see, it's also an outworking of a text like this. So rather than coming in with assertions or accusations, God comes in asking questions. And the fact that God takes an approach that we commend as best practice in counseling reflects the fact that God is himself the wonderful counselor. God's words are able to lay bare the human heart, which is exactly what he's seeking to do here. And we find from Adam's response that God's words are having their intended effect. In verse 10, Adam responds to God's question by telling God exactly what was going on in his heart. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Here, Adam articulates his perspective on what was going on in verse 8. As we considered from that text, this is exactly what our hearts do instinctively when we know we've sinned and we're aware of the presence of a holy God. We hide. And of course, again, God knows this, but what is happening here is causing Adam to see it and to admit it also. And perhaps unwittingly, Adam is by implication admitting his own guilt. God proceeds to connect these dots for Adam in verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? How Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Looking back to the end of chapter 2, we find that prior to the fall, Adam and Eve existed in a state of pure innocence, something we know nothing of in our experience. They were naked and unashamed in front of each other. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve had clear consciences in an open and joy-filled fellowship with God and with one another. God's words here lead Adam and us to understand that sin causes us to lose our righteous covering a covering provided by God as we abide in obedience under the protection of his wise 
instruction. The moment Adam had come out from under that covering, he knew instinctively that he now lacked his necessary covering, and he tried to provide it for himself. And so in verse 11, God makes the connection for Adam between his sin and his guilt. But Adam doesn't seem fully ready to own that connection. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree. Notice the contrast between what God had said and what Adam emphasizes here. In response to Adam's confession of his own nakedness, God simply asked Adam if he had eaten the forbidden fruit. Adam's reply emphasizes the woman and makes God the subject of the first active verb in what he says. So Adam, in effect, is saying, you, God, gave me this woman, and she gave to me from the tree. So it's her fault, and ultimately, it's your fault. But without any further prompting from God, and perhaps because Adam knows that God had pursued him and is dealing gently with him, Adam finally and simply confesses his own guilt at the end of verse 13. And I ate. The subsequent exchange in verse 13 between God and Eve goes much the same way. Eve's initial response to God's questioning is to shift blame to the serpent, but then she concludes with the same simple and clear confession. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, as I've mentioned, it's important for us to see here God's kindness and gentleness and mercy in approaching Adam and Eve as he does. And God's kindness in this, in this is even more apparent in light of the theological truth contained in part of the text we read at the beginning of our service this morning. 1 John 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What we will see as we continue in Genesis 3 is that 1 John 1, 9 captures exactly what God is after here with Adam and Eve. You see, in God's wisdom, and this is evident here with Adam and Eve for the first time in human history, because it follows the first sin in human history, in God's wisdom, he has connected our confession of sin with the righteousness of his own declaration of our forgiveness. And we're going to see more uh, explanation of how God is right in this when we get to verse 15. But before we move on, consider for a moment. What do you need to learn and apply from this exchange between God and Adam and Eve, in which God leads them to confess their sin? First, and I don't think it's possible to remind it of this too often, it is so good and so important to deal with a potentially guilty sinner in a tentative and gentle manner. And I'm being quite deliberate in saying potentially guilty sinner. You see, unlike God who knew infallibly that Adam and Eve were guilty, we do not know other people's guilt, not even our children's, with that kind of infallibility. And even though God knew their guilt, he still approached them tentatively and gently, starting by asking questions rather than making assertions or accusations. So friends, in your ministering, in your family relationships, in your marriages, and in your parenting, when you think you see the need to address sin, start by asking questions instead of making accusations. Follow the lead of your merciful and loving father, the wonderful counselor, the perfect husband, the perfect father. And take a gentle, tentative approach in loving pursuit of straying sinners. Use gracious and kind and heart-exposing words to lead them lovingly to the kind of humble, honest confession 
that can restore them to yourself and to God. Secondly, be encouraged by the apparent acceptability of Adam and Eve's flawed confessions. Beloved, you are beloved because the Father loves you. Not because your prayers are theologically informed enough or because your repentance is good enough or, as we see here, because your confession was sufficiently thorough and free of excuses. And I don't mean here to provide an excuse for not pursuing biblical faithfulness and how we confess sin. That's a good thing and we should do it. But think about how we might be tempted, especially us parents, not to accept an apology filled with excuses and blame-shifting, even when it also includes a clear confession of wrongdoing. Friends, if ever there were a confession, the motives of which could be doubted, it was these twin, blame-shifting confessions of Adam and Eve. And God graciously accepts them. Again, we'll see this worked out more as we move along, but for now, realize it is not Adam and Eve's perfect confession, and it's not your perfect confession, that reconciles them or you with the Father. It is his kind and patient work of drawing out hearts that are at last humbled to the point of confessing sin. Thirdly, and finally by way of application here, you must respond to God's loving and gracious efforts to bring your heart to his light and to lead you to confess your sin. If you have never known the covering of his righteousness, or if you have, but you presently find yourself straying and hiding, come. Come to the light-filled presence of the one who is calling you to himself and be led by the light of his words to honestly confess your sin. And he will, as he has promised and as we are seeing unfolded here with Adam and Eve, he will be faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is the first aspect of how God deals with sin. He elicits the sinner's confession. He does so gently as a kind father who seeks to restore his straying children to the life that is only in him. Starting with verse 14, we find the second aspect of God's solution for sin. Number two, God promises the serpent's defeat. We've just seen how God leads Adam and Eve to confession. That's all very personal and relational between God and his straying children. Here, however, beginning with the fact that God's next words are addressed to the serpent, we find that God is dealing with his more ultimate purposes. To see the significance of what God says here, it will be helpful to bring to mind one of the key truths about man that we learned back in our sermon, What is Man? We found in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, that man is God's image. Among the implications of this glorious doctrine, one to which we must pay particular attention in this context, is that when Satan launched his attack against Adam and Eve, he was launching an attack against God's established and authoritative representative on earth. Simply put, when Satan attacked man, he started a war with God, the contested prize being dominion over God's creation. In his crafty pride, the one who, according to Ezekiel 28, was charged with guarding God's paradise, instead became an insurrectionist. He successfully reversed the intended order of authority such that man is to this day lower than the angels, a reversal that will not be set right until the millennial kingdom. But what happens next is perhaps the ultimate example of the truth of Proverbs 16, verse 18. 
Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Read God's words from verse 14. Yahweh God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Notice, God does not address Satan as he had Adam and Eve with gentle questioning. God, with perfect knowledge of Satan's corrupt and irreversible motives, immediately issues a damning curse. No additional evidence, no opportunity for the serpent to respond, no testimony needed other than God's own decisive declaration. Now we recognize here, of course, that the components of Satan's curse in verse 14 describe the physiology of a snake and the implications of that physiology for a snake's existence. And I would say that it serves as something of an example of poetic justice that lowness and dust-eating literally characterize the animal which this proud one had made his vessel for bringing rebellion into the creation. But this description of the lowness of the snake also parallels and helps to describe Satan's post-fall existence. Whereas he had previously existed in a state of beauty and paradise, as described in Ezekiel, Scripture from this point pictures him, for example, as roaming about on the earth and walking around on it, as coming to Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him, and as prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Compared with his pre-fall life, Satan's later reality is one of low estate. Rather than splendor and beauty and paradise, its features are those of hostility insatiable hunger, and wilderness wandering. Now, as humiliating and damning as the words of verse 14 are for the serpent, what comes next represents even more of a defeat for him. Here we come to Genesis 3.15, one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. You'll see on your outline that I've broken this section out under small letter B towards the bottom, God reverses the fall. And under that heading, I've broken it into three smaller parts that we'll see as we study the details of this verse. And not to worry, I don't plan to go through and explain all of the text listed there. But I put them in your outline so that you can go and study them and their connection to this text later if you're so inclined. And I wanted them there also as a sort of visual indicator of how important this verse is in its connection with so many significant parts of Scripture that span the two Testaments all the way through the book of Revelation. So, God is reversing the fall, beginning here in verse 15. And the first element of this reversal has an immediate effect. God says, verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. To see the significance of this, you must realize that Satan's proudest moment was the moment he conquered and subjugated God's image. The man and woman were God's designated authority in the world, set to rule over all the creation, even the angels, and Satan had managed to upset that order. The other reality to grasp here is the fact that there are only two sides in this war. It's Satan who started the war against God, whose authority has been attacked. This reality is reflected in countless later texts of Scripture. Perhaps most striking among those are the occasions in the gospel, and these two are noted on your outline, Matthew 12 and Mark 9, where Jesus says that anyone not with him is against him, and that anyone not against him is for him. You see, there is no other option. 
you are on one side or the other, either with God or with the enemy. You are either a child of God or a child of the devil. And this is key here. When Adam and Eve sinned, they chose a side, and it was not God's. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, this may remind you of what happened with the character Edmund. The white witch, who is the allegorical figure for Satan in Lewis's novels, she had promised Edmund every kind of delight, including more riches and authority than he could imagine. And when Edmund joined her side, she laid claim to him as her own. With her claim over Edmund, the purposes of the great lion Aslan, Lewis's figure for God and Jesus, Aslan's plan to establish the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve to rule over his kingdom could not be accomplished. With her claim to Edmund, the witch and her darkness could continue to rule over what was supposed to be Aslan's kingdom. Now, although there's a need to be careful with what we might draw from some of Lewis's writing, particularly his view of the atonement, this dynamic with the witch and Edmund makes for a helpful analogy to what has taken place in Genesis 3. Again, Adam and Eve have chosen a side, and it is not God's. This makes them allies to the serpent and enemies to God. And so, when God says he will put enmity between the serpent and Eve, he is saying that there will be an immediate reversal of Satan's proudest accomplishment. Eve was the first to switch sides and join the serpent, and here God says she will be the first to come back to his side. And this is something he is going to accomplish unilaterally. God receives no input from anyone else, no contribution from Adam, from Eve, or from the serpent. I want to point out some other details from the near context that can help us see that this is what is going on here. Of course, we saw already a hint of this in Eve's confession in verse 13, in light of the theological truth that God is able to forgive those who confess their sin. Later, in verse 20, we read that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. In light of the, the dynamics here, that God had promised death in the day they ate from the tree and that they had evidenced spiritual death in the aftermath of eating. And then in light of what we see happening here in verse 15 with the immediate reversal of this status for Eve. In light of these things, it seems best to take verse 20 as saying that Eve is the mother not of all the physically alive, but of all of the spiritually alive. Eve's restoration from the enemy's side back to God's side makes her the mother of all those who would experience that same restoration. So this is the serpent's defeat in its most immediate effect. The first human, the first image of God he had won to his side is quickly taken away from him and put back on God's side. With God's next words, we find that this immediate reversal is also an enduring one, with implications for more than just Eve in her generation. As he continues speaking to the serpent, God adds to his promise. Not only would he put enmity between the serpent and the woman, I will also put enmity, he says, between your seed and her seed. Now you need to realize that before verse 15, Satan owned all the seed, so to speak. Adam and Eve were the only two people in existence. They had joined Satan's rebellion, and so he owned them. And it was a reasonable and even a correct assumption that he owned any offspring, any seed they might have as well. 
Now, before we go any further, let me remind you of something you ought to keep in mind about the word seed. In Hebrew, the word zera. This word is what is known as a collective noun. Like our English word fish, you can know only from context whether it's talking about one seed, singular, or multiple seeds, plural. And Moses sets his two uses of this word in parallel here. The way Hebrew writing works, when these are set in parallel, they're either both plural in number or they're both singular in number. And in this case, they're both plural. There is no particular seed of the serpent. There are many wicked, we see by chapter 6 of Genesis, who follow their father, father, the devil, in all kinds of wickedness. So also we find in chapter 5 of Genesis, there are many seeds of the woman who follow her faithful steps of belief in God's promise. So again, this reversal is enduring. It extends past Eve and her lifetime to many who would come later, but it's also partial. Some of the men and women to be born would repent towards God as righteous seeds of the woman, but others would prove to be seeds of the serpent. And these two groups would continue through history in opposition to one another. Now, if you didn't follow all of that, hopefully this much is clear for now. This pair of seeds, for both the seeds of the serpent and the seeds of the woman, it's seeds, plural. That's going to be important again in another minute. But before we move any further in the text, I need to point out at this point that we have actually acquired here a couple of significant pieces of the innocent suffering puzzle. First, consider this. What does it mean to be innocent? Now, that's a huge question with a multifaceted answer that I wouldn't expect to be able to unfold fully for you in several hours, let alone the time we have left. But a text like this helps us to see a single and simple truth about innocence that I think is very helpful. Think of it this way. As we have seen here, there are only two sides, right? And one of them is right, and one of them is wrong. One of these sides is good, and the other is evil. Anyone on the evil side is guilty, and anyone on the good side is innocent. Do you see where this is going? By saying that he was putting the woman, the first one to join the serpent's side, back on God's side, God was literally and unilaterally moving her from being on the evil side to being on the good side. By doing so, God officially changed Eve's status from guilty to innocent. More on this in a moment, but for now, we at least see that it's true that God declares some people, Eve and her seed, innocent. And so it's not true that there's no such thing as a good person. God demonstrates immediately after the fall that he will restore some, and he is able to call them good. He is able to call them innocent. The woman and her seed are on God's side, and therefore they are enemies of the serpent. And therefore, this means they are God's friends. And so we see, first, that there are indeed innocent people in this world. Secondly, we come to the suffering part of innocent suffering. What happens when these innocent people, Eve and her seed, what happens when these innocent people experience enmity with the serpent and with his seed? In a word, suffering. And I hope that this is an encouragement to you and that it becomes even more of an encouragement as we continue on in this text. Christian, when you experience suffering at the hands of Satan and at the hands of his seed, 
those who are fundamentally opposed to God and his word, rejoice. This enmity, this suffering, is evidence that you are a seed of the woman. You are on the good side. It is a blessed thing, as Peter says, to suffer as an innocent, to suffer for righteousness' sake, as a testimony to which side of this war you are on. O Christian, you must learn to rejoice even in your war wounds, even as you fight, and be reminded and strengthened as you see how far back this war goes and that it is waged for the vindication and glory of the Father. Now, I'm kind of sorry to bring us back from that to the issue of grammar. But whether you've observed it or not, there is another significant problem to be solved, and we're going to need to look to the grammar of our text to solve it. I mentioned a moment ago that God has declared here that he restores some of those who have rebelled, the woman and her seed. He issues what is effectively a judicial declaration that they are innocent, that they are now back on God's side and enemies of the serpent. And as I said, God has made this statement unilaterally. In effect, God has said, the guilty are now justified. Do you see the potential problem with this? Remember how we saw last week that the main thing that characterizes Satan is a crafty sort of knowledge. Knowledge he is determined to use for his anti-God purposes. Well, of all the ways Satan puts this knowledge to work, one of his favorites seems to be the one that earns him the title, Accuser. You see, Satan knows the truth of Proverbs 17, verse 15, that one who justifies the wicked and one who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to Yahweh. Satan knows that there is something in God's character that makes it so that God abominates the idea of calling the guilty innocent. And so, Satan, of course, would jump at the opportunity to stand at the bar, as it were, accusing Eve and God of unrighteousness. He would demand that Eve and her seed as God's enemies be turned back over to him because they are his rightful subjects. But what God reveals next precludes any possibility that Satan could be successful in such an assertion. Read the final part of verse 15. God continues speaking to Satan, referring to the seed of the woman. He says this, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now you may have heard Genesis 3.15, and especially this last line referred to as the Proto-Euangelion, which means first gospel or first promise. What is it about these words that could explain why the rest of the Bible looks to this promise as the answer and anchor for the longings and the faithfulness of God's people across the ages, from Job all the way to Revelation? First, as I said, is a matter of grammar. A moment ago, in our observations about the line pitting the seed of the woman against the seed of the serpent, do you recall what we determined about whether the, the seed was singular or plural? We saw there from context that it was a plural seed. And so when Moses starts this next line with the word he, we need to pay careful attention. To find he in this spot is strange in three ways. First, its inclusion would be unnecessary because in Hebrew the verb supplies its own pronoun. So it's, it's not needed. It's an unnecessary word. Secondly, whenever the subject is supplied, its usual place in the word order would follow the verb. 
In this case, Moses moves it up to the front of the verse. Finally, this is a singular pronoun, and this is the biggest issue. It's a singular pronoun with a plural antecedent. And if that doesn't make sense, it's like if I were to say something along these lines. I just love my five children. He is such a delight. That's just bad grammar, right? Unless Moses is using it to make a theological point, which is exactly what he's doing. You see, this singular seed shows up in the text literally, grammatically, taking the place of the woman and her plural seeds. And Moses gives it this sort of triple emphasis so that we won't miss this. Whatever happens to this singular seed and whatever he accomplishes, these things happen with him in the place of the woman and her plural seeds. So, what events are spoken of here relative to this singular seed? First, God says this, speaking to the serpent, he shall bruise you on the head. The word translated bruise here is better understood as crush. And notice the part of the serpent's anatomy that will receive this crushing blow. How would you kill a snake? What part of its anatomy would you go after? Its head. Friends, what we find in these words is that due to the work of this promised singular seed, not only is Satan humbled from his beauty and splendor to be a dust eater and a wanderer on the earth, and not only is his immediate victory reversed with the woman released from her subjugation to him and restored to God, these words promise that the singular seed of the woman will deliver a crushing, decisive, fatal blow to the serpent. Now, think about this from Adam and Eve's perspective, and from Moses' perspective, for that matter, since he's the one recording these words. What is indicated here is that one of Adam and Eve's descendants, one of their sons, will be so powerful that he will be able to deliver this crushing death blow to the serpent to this one who had just demonstrated his superior power and ability over Adam and Eve. Now let me ask this, and try to think about this especially from a Hebrew mindset. In terms of greatness, in terms of strength or ability, what would the understanding be of a son in comparison to his father? Is a son greater than his father? No. In fact, we have solid evidence that such an idea would be totally contrary to the Jewish way of thinking because Jesus uses nearly identical reasoning in his argument with the Pharisees over the identity of the Messiah. Jesus asks in that setting, if a son is not greater than his father, then how is it possible that David, when he writes of him in the Psalms, would call his son Lord? And what Jesus was leading the Pharisees to with this question is the same logical conclusion that would have been available to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, for that matter, in the garden. That the only way Eve's singular seed, the promised Messiah, would be great enough and powerful enough to defeat Satan is if he is also Yahweh, God. Now with that in mind, look at the last words of verse 15. God here is still speaking to the serpent. You shall bruise him on the heel. Now, the words that come just before these, he shall bruise you on the head, are given the place of prominence. God wants the serpent to know, first off, that his defeat at the hands of this singular seed will be ultimate, decisive, and final. But these next words indicate something profound also. Whereas the serpent and his plural seed would be at enmity, they would provide general opposition to the woman and to her righteous seed. When it comes to the singular seed, the promised Messiah, 
the serpent would be able to strike a devastating blow. And if Adam and Eve and the serpent were able to make the logical inferences I've pointed out, this is an absolutely astonishing prediction. With regard to Eve and her plural seed, we can easily see that the opposition from the serpent against them is in some sense deserved. She had rebelled, and we, her seed, are born and walk in sin also. But if it's true, as we know it is, that Yahweh himself would take on flesh, becoming the woman's singular seed, then there is no sense in which the Messiah's suffering, the crushing blow of the serpent, is deserved. Friends, Yahweh had not rebelled. It was impossible for him to. He is the very definition of righteousness and innocence. And so if the singular seed is Yahweh, then what we find here is that Yahweh joins himself to humanity as the ultimate innocent sufferer. And part of that is what's indicated in the words, you shall bruise him on the heel. For the serpent, as we saw, the crushing blow would be delivered to the all-important head. For the seed, it would be delivered to the heel, a lower and less critical part of the body. But it would be a crushing blow nonetheless. Friends, how is it that God can declare the rebel Eve to be back on his side without violating his own just character? How is it that sinners can be saved? How is it possible that our hopelessly flawed confessions can be accepted and that we could be called innocent? Only if the one who is eternally innocent and holy were to join himself truly and intimately to the rebels such that he actually became one with us as one of us, sharing our flesh. And only if, as one of us, as the king of his rebel people, he himself were to absorb the crushing blow that was due to us, so that the penalty of our rebellion was fully paid. In this way, and only in this way, our guilt could be removed. And Yahweh God's perfect innocence and righteousness could cover us once again. This was the only way, and it is the way revealed here in its initial form in Genesis chapter 3. Now I want to acknowledge that if you have a hard time wrapping your head around the idea that all of this is found here in Genesis 3, that's understandable. I confess that some of the language I've used to describe what is found in this text is probably drawn from later developments in Messianic theology as it unfolds in the rest of the Bible. But to provide some corroborating evidence that the essence of these things really is here in Genesis 3, I want to draw your attention to the first text listed in the parentheses on the outline next to the Bible's Messianic hope. At the end of Job chapter 9, we find Job's clearest expression of his wish for a Messiah and the gifts he hoped would accompany a messianic salvation. Things like forgiveness, redemption, resurrection, and representation. And crucially, in chapter 9, verses 32 to 35, Job laments what he perceives as his lack of a representative. Job characterizes his would-be savior as an umpire, one who could lay his hand on Job as a man, while at the same time laying his hand on God. As God. You see, as Job wrestled with the reality of his own innocent suffering, he came to the inescapable conclusion that he needed a Messiah who was both God and 
man. And so in our text this morning, particularly in its first promise, the Proto-Evangelion, God provides through Moses the most important answer to the most important questions that can ever be asked. Questions raised in the Bible's most ancient book as it grapples with cosmic issues and thereby brings to light man's greatest need. And from where we sit, we can see that not only have these things been promised, we find from the rest of the Bible that elements of this promise have come to glorious fulfillment. Eve's singular seed has come. As we saw a few weeks ago from Matthew 2, he was born into weakness and humility in the face of fierce opposition from Satan and his seed. And when the time was right, the promised seed went to the cross. He went to our cursed death. He absorbed and completed our entire penalty so that we who are united to him by faith, by faith in this promise, even as it's worked out in all of Scripture and in all of history, by faith our, our status is justly transferred from rebel to friend. We are no longer guilty and we are no longer dead. We are made alive together with him. The serpent does not win. His claim does not hold. And his accusations do not stick. Satan and his host of fallen angels will not maintain their dark grip on this world. The singular seed will return one day soon. And when he does, he will at long last fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule in righteousness over God's kingdom on earth. And finally, to crush all of his enemies. The serpent, his seed, and the death he introduced into creation will finally be subdued and cast out of God's paradise forever. Friends, this is God's solution for sin. And hopefully you see how this solution in its fullness provides so much more hope and purpose to sufferers than a pat answer about God's inscrutable sovereignty. As I said earlier, you must respond to seeing God's gentleness in leading sinners to confession by coming yourself to confess your sin. And now I hope that you see that with far more glory and detail than Eve ever knew, you may rest with complete confidence on God's painfully self-sacrificial evidence of his loving and forgiving intention towards sinners. The ultimate promise has become reality. The father was pleased to crush his own arm, his only begotten son, who was also miraculously the seed of the woman. The promised seed, our Lord Jesus Christ, bore in his body on the tree the curse, the death, all of the suffering. Satan was allowed to touch him. He delivered a crushing blow to him. And therefore, he cannot touch you. If you will join yourself by faith, as Eve did, to this ultimate innocent sufferer, and if you are joined to Jesus by faith, mark this, Satan and his seed will oppose you. You will bear difficulty along with your Savior, participating in his sufferings. But you are also promised along with him what his finished work has won, ultimate freedom and restoration to all goodness and joy and peace, a paradise even greater than Eden. Again, won't you turn from your sin 
Come out of the shadows into the light and confess your sin as best you know how. And the God who was pleased to crush his own son will without hesitation apply his blood to cleanse you from your unrighteousness and restore you to the sweet fellowship for which you were made with all of his saints and most importantly with himself. Please pray with me. Father, what a glorious promise. What a firm foundation for our hope. We thank you that in the fullness of time so much of this has come to pass. We thank you, Father, that you minister these truths to our hearts as a comfort and an encouragement, even in the midst and especially in the midst of suffering. We pray, Father, that you would seal these truths to our hearts, that you cause us to want to obey you. Father, that you would continue to show your faithfulness as you work history towards these glorious ends. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.